Hello and welcome back to The Planet Today with Matt Norton. Today is Friday, September 24th, 2021. I am your host, Matt Norton, here once again with our producer and co-host, Nick Janusa. Nick, how's it going on this fine Friday? Matt, it is a beautiful Friday. It is my mom's birthday. Happy birthday, Lucy G. Happy birthday, Lucy, you absolute legend. (laughs) She is a legend. She is 60 today. It is a big big day for her. Is she going to kill you for saying that? Yes. (laughs) No, she's 32. She is 32 today. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. How are you doing, Maddie? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, Excited for the weekend. Uh, Hoping that I can go apple picking tomorrow if the weather holds up, but we'll see. We'll see. Prayers, 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 prayers. All right, let's get into the show. Welcome to the planet today. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy, all in an easily digestible weekly podcast for you to listen to on your own time. This show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental, whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics. TPT has a little bit for everyone, so we are happy to have you as a listener. If you haven't already left us one, please leave a review on the show so we can give you a shout out as a thank you. Um, And that's on Apple Podcasts, whether you listen on Spotify, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, any other podcast service that I don't know we're on. (laughs) Don't be afraid to leave us a review. It helps a lot. (laughs) Let's kick things off with our quick hits. So our first one comes from Yahoo News, where Bob Weber of the Canadian Press reported, Fungus that's killed millions of bats found for the first time in Saskatchewan. Yeah, I think I owe an apology to Yahoo News because the first time we brought them up, I had a little rib and I was like, didn't even know they were still around. And we have had quite a few Yahoo News stories since then. So uh, (laughs) hand up, that one's on me. Anyway, uh, researchers from the Wildlife Conservation Society reported that they found the fungus that causes white nose syndrome for the first time in eastern Saskatchewan last week, which comes as a surprise to the scientists. They had hoped that the western grasslands nearby would serve as kind of a barrier that the fungus would not be able to spread across and wouldn't infect the bat population there. The fungus, which is called Pseudogymnoascus destructans that causes white nose syndrome, is believed to have been introduced to North America from Europe or Asia, where it's present but doesn't cause significant mortality in bat species. And the full extent of its native range and the route of its introduction is unknown, according to the Invasive Species Compendium's data sheet on the fungus. White nose syndrome works by infecting the skin on the muzzle, ears, and wings of hibernating bats, and its symptoms can include excessive or unexplained mortality where the bats are hibernating, visible fungal growth on the muzzle or wing of freshly dead bats, abnormal daytime activity during winter months, and wing damage in bats that have finished hibernating. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, between the winter of 2007-2008 and March 2021, millions of bats in 35 states and seven provinces in Canada have died as a result of the disease. They added that 
Bat population declines are expected to have substantial impacts on the environment and agriculture. Bats eat insects that damage crops and spread disease. Consumption of insects by bats saves farmers billions of dollars in pest control services annually. So Bob Weber reported that bats are able to fight off the fungus during the summer, but during hibernation, when their immune systems slow down, they can't. This allows the fungus to eat the skin on their wings, dehydrating the bats. The bats will then wake up and drink water, which burns some of their energy, and the more often they have to do that, the less likely it is for their fat reserves to get them through the winter, which results in death from starvation. Since bats hibernate in large groups, this is highly infectious and has resulted in 85% of bats in certain populations dying, according to Jordy Seggers of the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative. Although the fungus is now present in Saskatchewan, no bats have yet been diagnosed with the disease. So that's some good news, but we will definitely have to keep an eye on whether or not the fungus leads to some diagnoses. Yeah, you know, bats are not all that bad. They might have started COVID uh, potentially, but they save farmers billions of dollars per year. I just had, I had no idea that they were that impactful on the environment. Yeah, I mean, because all the money that they'd be spending on pesticides, you don't have to worry about that if there's less pests. And luckily, bats eat a ton of those insects. So um, the, the article mentioned just one quote that I want to close with. Uh, the threat of white nose syndrome comes on top of challenges they already face from deforestation and the draining of wetlands that nurture the insects the bats eat. And uh, Seggers, who we talked about earlier, said, we know climate change is already having a big effect on bats. So white nose syndrome just kind of compounds the issues they're already facing. So this uh, this definitely could turn into a dicey situation in Saskatchewan. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and why do I also feel like I was at your house one time when a bat flew in? Uh, that's because we definitely had a bat in our house one time growing up. And my, <laughs> yeah. my dad hit it with a tennis racket because we couldn't get it outside. And yes. then we, uh, we sent it into whatever animal service and it did not have rabies. So none of us needed the shop. But yeah, man, that was uh, <laughs> that, that happened. <laughs> that was locked away, like in the way, way back of my head. And I didn't I even pulled remember. it out somehow. I did not remember that until you brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So next up, we have Stefan Nicola of Bloomberg Hyperdrive, who reports VW pulls back curtain on new electric car battery lab in Germany. This article started off with some interesting historical context about a city in Germany's northwestern state of Lower Saxony known as Salzgitte. And it gained notoriety in 1950 when the city's steelworkers protested the Allied forces' order that the city's industrial plants should be destroyed as part of the post-World War II demilitarization plan for Germany. Their protests were successful, and the city remained a crucial industrial manufacturer for the country. Today, it's actually home to Volkswagen's main motor factory, which employs roughly 7,000 people and has been making millions of gas and diesel engines over the last 50 years. Volkswagen has promised to phase out these engines and transition to electric vehicles by 2035, so they're now hoping to make the plant become an EV powerhouse instead of just the main motor factory that it is today. So Nikola traveled to Salzgitter last week as Volkswagen opened an $80 million facility focused on research, development, and testing of electric vehicle batteries. The goal for the facility is for the researchers to become experts in the technology so that Volkswagen can become more self-sufficient in its EV manufacturing. By doing this, they would have reduced reliance on third-party suppliers, which could reduce the cost of batteries by up to 50% which in turn would reduce the overall cost of electric vehicles for you and me and everyday consumers. 
Nicola notes that Volkswagen already operates a battery pilot line and recycling facility in Zalsgitte and plans to construct a full-scale factory to produce cells there starting in 2025. By the end of next year, Volkswagen says more than 1,000 people will work on EV technologies at the site. Battery is the most expensive part of an electric vehicle, and they are honestly the key to how well it works. So mastering this technology is one of the most important parts of designing a car like this. Volkswagen is still recovering from a PR scandal where they were lying about their diesel emissions in 2015 when the United States Environmental Protection Agency found that Volkswagen had intentionally programmed turbocharged direct injection diesel engines, otherwise known as TDI diesel engines, to activate their emissions controls only during lab testing. So this caused the vehicle's nitrous oxide output to meet U.S. standards during regulatory testing, but then when the cars were just on the road doing some real-world driving, they were emitting 40 times more nitrous oxide. This was present in around 500,000 cars produced between 2009 and 2015. So this is another good example of a company that was greenwashing, and in this case saying their diesel cars produced far less emissions than their competition but the company policies itself did not reflect this environmental activism. Yeah, and Matt, I actually have a question for you. So how would you feel about a company like Tesla or any other company who has like the electric vehicle battery game kind of down pat at this point? Um, How would you feel about them sharing trade secrets so we can like quickly ramp up the EV production and progress towards, you know, reaching that goal of, uh, you know, carbon-free future faster? Um, okay. So realistically, I don't think it would happen simply because all these companies want to make money. Um, yeah, that's what I was thinking too. I was like capitalism over. Yeah. It's, it's not going to happen, but in a perfect world, um, in my, my dream socialist utopia, I love it. (laughs) Like share secrets, (laughs) make the world better, make everything cheaper for people, stop prioritizing profits over people. I'm, I'm with all that, but, um, yeah, it just like, it wouldn't happen because if, they showed each other how to do something better for cheaper. It just kind of screws over their own business. And yeah, unfortunately, I just don't see sharing those those tech secrets happening. Yeah. All right. I guess you could just call me Joe McCarthy for this uh, episode. (laughs) All right. So moving on to a story from National Geographic. Pollution and overuse threaten Florida's fragile freshwater springs by Laura Parker. So the story is about Jason Gully, who's a geology professor at the University of Southern Florida, and he was studying how melting ice affects sea level rise, but then the pandemic hit and he couldn't travel for his studies for a while. So he shifted his attention from caves below glaciers in Greenland and Nepal to deep water caverns in Florida, and he began to study the declining health of their aquifers. Gully is also a National Geographic explorer and provided the photography for this article. So Laura Parker writes that Florida Springs have been in trouble, quote, for decades, fouled by pollutants from agricultural runoff and sewage leakage and overdrawn to provide drinking water to 90% of Florida's 22 million residents, end quote. And Gully calls the decline of the springs a, quote, slow motion environmental tragedy, end quote. The Florida Springs are directly linked to Florida's aquifer and Florida's surface waters. The water Floridians drink comes from the aquifer. So this is really important water that we're talking about here. And the springs are spread densely across the state as over a thousand springs can be found across central and northern Florida. 
The best of these springs are called first magnitude springs and produce 65 million gallons of fresh water every day. So just so we're abundantly clear here, it's very bad if the health of these springs is declining and they are also the source of so much drinking water for the state. These once blue waters are now murky and producing less water thanks to overpumping of the aquifer and some of the springs have dried up completely. And then also sea level rise is causing the water table to rise with it, which means that the risk for salt water to get into these freshwater springs is now higher. The increase in nutrients from fertilizer has allowed for more algal blooms in the springs, further decreasing their overall health. So fun fact, I guess, uh, Ponce de Leon is given credit for, I guess, discovering is the wrong term, but discovering the springs in 1513 while searching for the fountain of youth. Uh, he did not find that. <laughs> but anyway, uh, the, the springs were once a main water source for indigenous people and have since become one of Florida's popular tourist attractions by as early as the late 1800s. And today they are the site of state efforts to protect them. So it's been kind of this steep fall from grace due to human involvement. In 2016, Florida's government chose 30 springs for additional protection and restoration efforts, but so far they have been ineffective due to algal blooms and overpumping. The article points out that Florida is gaining about 845 residents per day, which works out to be a new Orlando every year. So this has substantial impact on water usage. And when I read that stat, I was kind of just blown away because 845 residents a year sounds like a lot just when you hear the number. And then when they break it down to like a new city of people every year. Yeah. Like Florida is growing, which means they're going to use more and more water. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah. And then the article also points out some things that Chuck O'Neill, who is an activist in the global rights of nation movement, is proposing to Florida state legislature for the 2022 ballot. And his proposal would create amendments to improve the health of wetlands, coasts, rivers and springs in Florida. So O'Neill is currently collecting signatures to get them on the ballot, which we're going to link in the show notes if you'd like to read them or if you live in Florida and you'd like to sign them. If you click the link in the show notes, all you have to do is click sign the petition, then type in your name and your email address to submit it. If you're a Florida resident, we would highly recommend checking them out. As always with National Geographic, the photography here is also incredible. So special shouts to Jason Gully. And definitely check this one out if you have not used up your free Nat Geo articles for this month or if you're a Nat Geo subscriber. Which this podcast is. Can confirm. <laughs> not to put a damper on everyone else's mood, but we are Nat Geo subscribers. <laughs> I also didn't know that Nat Geo Explorer was like a title that people could have. That's freaking awesome. Yeah, I, I think that's um, that's their group of people who have like, they have their own job and then they do kind of side work for Nat Geo. Like they're not a full-time Nat Geo photographer or Nat Geo writer. I think, don't quote me on that. Watch, we're going to look it up after. And it's like Nat Geo Explorer is a (laughs) full-time employee. Yeah. They go through seven months of SEAL training. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's like an adjunct employee, but I could be wrong. I'm I'm guessing. (laughs) We'll check it out after. All right. So let's move on here. So this one is from grist.org and it's titled Study. Indigenous resistance has staved off 25% of U.S. and Canada's annual emissions by Adam Mahoney. This is a really cool study that found that indigenous people have prevented about 400 new coal-fired power plants worth of pollution from entering the environment. 
The Indigenous Environmental Network and Oil Change International found that indigenous-led resistances towards 21 fossil fuel projects in the United States and Canada have stopped or delayed a substantial amount of greenhouse gas pollution in the past decade. At least one quarter of the annual emissions between the United States and Canada did not happen as a result of this movement. Mahoney writes, quote, This is despite an onslaught of attacks against indigenous activists over the past few years. Over the last few years, victories won against projects through direct actions have led to more than 35 states enacting anti-protest laws, jail time for protesters, thousands of dollars of fines, and even the killing of prominent activists. He provides sources to each of those claims, and it is definitely worth checking out if you're either skeptical or just curious about them, because they are all true. Dallas Goldtooth is an organizer within the Indigenous Environmental Network, and he says that Indigenous peoples are providing a roadmap for their allies and supporters to adopt as a way to address the climate crisis. Indigenous resistance have protested at the sites of construction as well as in the courts. Through physical disruptions and legal challenges, they have directly stopped projects expected to produce 780 million metric tons of greenhouse gases every year and are currently fighting projects that would dump more than 800 million metric tons of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere every year. We talk a lot on here about how these projects tend to more heavily impact Native Americans in the United States or First Nations people in Canada. This study shows that they are making some seriously positive strides in an era where we need all of the positive strides we can get. I'd like to personally add that it shouldn't take being in the group that has impacted the greatest for you to care about these sort of issues, because if you don't care when others' rights to clean land and clean water and clean air are stripped away, all for the sake of oil production, then no one's going to care about you when it's your neighborhood that's impacted. And frankly, with how climate change impacts every area of the world, these oil projects will impact you, even if they aren't located directly in your backyard. And just one more quote from Dallas Goldtooth before we move on says, recognizing indigenous rights protects the water, protects the land, and protects our futures. Yeah, it's like it's like saying, you know, everyone knows someone, you know, that, that's affected by one of these things, and the people that don't aren't going to take it seriously, you know? So until we all know that one person, like that woman uh, from Susquehanna County in Pennsylvania who was like, yeah, they're fracking in my backyard, and like, it's screwing with the drinking water. It's the same thing. Like, if you knew someone like that, you'd be like, oh, shoot, like, we really got to take climate change seriously. Yeah, people tend to care more when it impacts them directly. But uh, let's let's strive to be better than that in the future. You know, let's let's care about things before it gets to your backyard. Yeah, seriously. And there's my soapbox tip of the week, baby. (laughs) All right. So our last quick hit of the week is by Hiroko Tabuchi of The New York Times. And it is titled, House Panel Expands Inquiry into Climate Disinformation by Oil Giants. Nick, if we had the licensing rights to it, and if we had a bigger budget, I would want us to put in the Curb Your Enthusiasm theme song for this first paragraph. So listeners, please just imagine that in your head as I say... Executives from Exxon, Shell, BP, Chevron, and more are going to testify in front of Congress next month after a secret recording exposed an Exxon official bragging about the disinformation campaign by these companies. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) Um, It's not just those companies, though, to lobbyist groups, the American Petroleum Institute and the United States Chamber of Commerce will also be testifying. So the gang's all here. 
It's like an Always Sunny episode. It's like the gang testifies in front of Congress for for disinformation. Yeah, the, the gang gets called out for their their campaign to mislead the public. <laughs> um, anyway, so the, the oil and gas industry have been able to greenwash campaigns for far too long. And as a refresher from last week's episode, greenwashing is disinformation by an organization that creates a public image of environmental responsibility. Tabuchi writes, quote, the move comes as Washington is wrestling with major climate legislation intended to slash the nation's reliance on oil and gas and in a year of climate disasters that have affected millions of Americans, end quote. We've had a rough summer with wildfires becoming a common weekly discussion here. Uh, Hurricanes have become more abundant and more destructive over the past decade, and crippling heat waves and droughts across the United States have been just kind of commonplace. So the House Oversight Committee appears to finally be doing something about this campaign from Big Oil, and a letter from the House Committee to Darren Woods, who is Exxon's chief executive, reads, We are deeply concerned that the fossil fuel industry has reaped massive profits for decades while contributing to climate change that is devastating American communities, costing taxpayers billions of dollars, and ravaging the natural world. To be serious for a moment, it is awful that we live in a society where this has to be done and that these companies have prioritized their bottom lines over people and the natural environments of the world. But that being said, I am excited that this might bring about some serious and abrupt change. Carolyn Maloney, who is a Democrat from New York, uh, she's also the committee chairperson, has stated that she plans to hold the fossil fuel industry accountable for its role in causing and exacerbating climate change. Tabuchi writes that limiting the global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius would require the world, among other measures, to immediately stop approving new oil and gas fields, according to a scenario put forward by the world's leading energy agency. So I'll be honest here. My top priorities are as follows for this. One, no more new gas and oil fields. That way we can truly phase them out. And two, make the oil industry pay a hefty fine for their roles here. And instead of just a fine that's going to affect them, put that money into large utility scale solar and offshore wind projects or research and development for energy storage and batteries and other measures that will make our green energy transition smoother. They had their fun, they made their money, now it's time for us to fix some of the damages that they have caused. The timing of this investigation is also key because lobbyists from the oil and gas industry have been trying to influence the $3.5 trillion budget bill and the $1 trillion infrastructure bill to protect fossil fuel subsidies, which is something that President Biden has advocated for getting rid of. Companies like BP, who brag about advocating for regulating methane and implementing carbon pricing to help reach our Paris climate agreement goals, are now under a microscope. They can't really say they're advocating for serious climate solutions like those at the same time as the industry lobbyists are calling for keeping fossil fuel subsidies. So this is kind of a you made your bed and now lie in it moment where what they've been doing is coming to light. So I'm, I'm Curious and I'll say a little more than cautiously optimistic that something good is going to come out of this one. Yeah, I think it's a safe bet to say that I'm going to be watching C-SPAN. And that is not something I've ever said before in my entire life, but I'll be watching C-SPAN for these testimonials. Yeah, dude, we're at that age now where it's like, I could watch Parks and Recreation for the third time or Brooklyn Nine-Nine for the second time. (laughs) 
or I could like tune into something that actually is kind of important. So I will also be tuning into that just to see what they say when they testify. Um, and at the very least, I'll be following along with those Twitter clips. <laughs> I hope we get some good clips. It might be like the Jersey Shore, like, Ron! <laughs> Ron, the first night at the U.S. <laughs> House Committee <laughs> testimony. <laughs> oh, I could only hope for that level of drama, but I know I don't. I won't get it. Um, okay, so I think right now is a good time to take a break, Matt. What do you say? Yeah, <laughs> so we're getting a little unhinged there. <laughs> yes. Um, so after the break, we'll be doing a uh, deep dive into the Paris Agreement. Nick, this is our first episode of the fall, so you know what comes with the fall? Cold weather, bonfires, uh, football, uh, flannels. And most important, there we go, that's what I was going to say, it's flannel <laughs> season. And what goes well with the flannel colors, all those complex patterns with a bunch of different colors involved? One flat color. And luckily, I have a couple handkerchiefs, and each one of them is only one color, so I can use them with my flannels and not look like a... Uh, Fashion idiot. <laughs> They're bold. They're bold to make up for the fact that I am usually not with my fashion choices. <laughs> anyway, Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. You can build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.com and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot com and code TPT. You know what they say, Matt. Fortune favors the bold. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Today, we are going to be doing a deep dive into the Paris Agreement and the latest reports about whether or not we're actually on pace to hit those targets. This is a really important conversation, so we're going to provide a ton of context from 2015 when the Paris Agreement was signed to start. Uh, we don't want to assume anyone knows anything, so apologies if some of this is repetitive, um, but we just we wanted to cover all of our bases and make sure everyone's on the same page before we move into the deeper parts of this conversation. On December 12th, 2015, at the COP21, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change reached an agreement to mitigate climate change. For the first time ever, all nations were unified under one common cause of ensuring a livable world for future generations. The Paris Agreement's central goal was to keep global temperature rise below 2 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial levels. The agreement also encouraged limiting the temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius. The agreement aimed to increase the ability of countries to deal with the impacts of climate change, so it addressed both mitigation and adaptation to climate change. Paris attempted to promote low greenhouse gas emissions and climate-resilient finances. 
And it also provides for an enhanced transparency framework for action and support through nationally determined contributions, which are otherwise known as NDCs. The NDCs were basically a plan that each country developed on their own, and they're supposed to represent the best effort that each country feels it could give to combat climate change. The NDCs were supposed to strengthen once initial goals were hit, and Paris required all parties to report regularly on their emissions and on how their NDCs were going, along with a global stock take every five years to assess global progress towards achieving the purpose of this agreement and also to let individual parties know whether or not they should or need to do more to hit those goals. As of today, 191 parties out of the 197 that attended the talks are a part of the Paris Agreement. Yeah, and before we move on, we should probably do a quick summary of the official goals of the Paris Agreement. So the first one was to limit global temperature rise by reducing greenhouse gas emissions. The second one was to provide a framework for transparency, accountability, and the achievement of more ambitious targets. And the third was to mobilize support for climate change mitigation and adaptation in developing nations. Yeah, that's a good call. Thank you. Um, So here's what's good about Paris. Almost every country is involved. NDCs mean that developing countries aren't asked to do more than they really can. Industrialized, wealthy nations have the money and the tech to advance to lower carbon technology faster. So this also means that they can help developing countries get there. The agreement focuses on mitigation. So the agreement tries to lessen the future impacts of climate change, but it also focuses on adaptation, knowing that even with mitigation, certain areas will need to adapt because warming will still impact them greatly. On the other hand, what's bad about Paris to me are two main things. So the first is that each country produces their own NDC. And in theory, it would be easy for a government to say, you know, we can't do more. It'll be expensive. and Let some other country make up for it. And that kind of leads to a tragedy of the commons type issue where if every country involved says, hey, let's somebody else make up for what we're not doing then we're never going to hit our goal because everyone's going to just be emitting more than they're supposed to. The other issue was the enforcement of Paris. And it's a strategy that's sometimes referred to as name and shame, where you name your goal in the form of an NDC in this case, and then you try to hit that goal. And if you don't hit that goal, everyone says, hey, Nick, you really should have done more and you should really do better next time. It's kind of a little slap on the wrist. Countries can place tariffs on another country that doesn't hit their goals, but they don't have to. And the United Nations isn't going to place any sanctions if you don't hit your goals. So aside from just like international disappointment, there's really not much that's binding you to your agreements. Yeah. And why not like pursue maybe a more aggressive strategy to be like, you know, hey, if you don't hit your goal, you're going to be fined this much money. You know, that way it's just cheaper to hit your goals? Great question. And, um, you know, a a lot of the countries with the highest level of carbon emissions said they would not sign the agreement if something like that was included. So you can have this absolutely perfect agreement where everyone says we're going to decrease our emissions by X amount. And if we don't, we're going to get fined this much. So like it's, we got to hit it because if not, we're just screwing ourselves over. 
That means nothing without the United States, China, India, Russia, Japan, Canada, the European Union, etc. joining it. So Paris was this monumental agreement that did a lot of good, but it's not without its flaws. And with the next UN climate meeting, COP26, set to take place between October 31st and November 12th of this year, UN Chief Antonio Guterres warned on Friday of last week that a failure to cut global emissions is sending the world down a catastrophic path to 2.7 degrees Celsius of warming. If that sounds alarming, that's because it should be. But we're going to get into why don't freak out yet. His comments mean two things. One, acting like everything's going according to plan and maintaining this, you know, it's business as usual approach is going to send us well above Paris's two degree upper limit goal. And two, COP26 is close enough where his comments will still be on everyone's mind, along with that latest IPCC report that we talked about a few episodes ago. The timing was perfect to tell everyone who might be hesitant to pursue aggressive climate action. This is bigger than you. This is bigger than your country. So get off your ass and do something. Samini Sengupta of the New York Times wrote, quote, that level of warming measured against pre-industrial levels is likely to increase the frequency of deadly heat waves and threaten coastal cities with rising sea levels. The country by country analysis concluded. She also added that the news reports showed the large gap between what the scientific consensus urged world leaders to do and what those leaders have been willing to do so far. Greenhouse gas emissions are currently on pace to increase by 16% globally during this decade compared to their 2010 levels. Keep in mind that the IPCC report said we need to decrease emissions by around 25% by 2030. If we're looking at a 16% increase, that's effectively 41% higher than where we need to be in nine years. So you can hear all that and think we're screwed. Or you could think we are so lucky that all of this is coming out with a little over a month before the annual conference that can actually do something about it. At the time of recording, Antonio Guterres is set to meet later this week with the world's presidents and prime ministers for the annual meeting of the UN General Assembly. So you have to think he's going to drive home this point and say, get ready for COP26 because you all need to be ready to do the work and to hold everyone accountable who isn't willing to do the work. Just for transparency, uh, Nick and I had a busy week this week, so we have to record earlier in the week. We will definitely follow up on this in next week's episode, so apologies for the delay. We promise we will cover it. When President Biden hosted an event last Friday to encourage countries to enact more ambitious climate pledges, some countries with high emissions sent mid-level envoys and didn't really seem to take the event seriously. Some countries have strengthened their Paris agreements, including the European Union, United Kingdom, and the United States, but 70 countries, including China, Saudi Arabia, and India, have not submitted new pledges for 2030 or submitted less ambitious pledges than what they provided in 2015. To name a few more, there is Australia, Brazil, Indonesia, Mexico, New Zealand, Russia, Singapore, Switzerland, and Vietnam. So a lot of countries are just saying, yeah, we're fine, or no, you know, we were even doing too much last time. That's not going to fly next month and into November when these talks happen because, frankly, they just they can't be doing that and expect us to 
cut emissions the way that we need to for the world. So COP26 has this kind of unique challenge where they need to find a way to make sure every country involved hits their targets and that the targets are reasonable, but also ambitious. So it's not about do what you can. It's about we need to do as much as we can. Yeah, it seems like there's a lack of accountability. And so like something where you can hold these countries accountable for and holding them to their word and the countries that are like just sitting on their ass not doing anything I don't even know like because they're in the Paris Agreement so you can't like find them but like you need to find a, a, some other way to get them off their ass and, and do something yeah it's it's a good point and I think with this upcoming agreement you know hopefully we get a Glasgow agreement in, in COP26 at Scotland they're going to need to set something that is legally binding and holds people accountable. And and some good news is that it's not just Nick and me saying this. Guterres warned last Friday that, quote, there is a high risk of failure of COP26. It is clear that everyone must assume their responsibilities, end quote. So honestly, I'm glad we have him there to remind everyone of this during the talks. CNN's Ivana Kodosova notes that none of the world's major economies, including the entire G20, have a climate plan to meet their pledge of keeping with the 1.5 degree target. This was concluded by a climate action tracker, which is a watchdog that analyzed the policies of 36 countries and the European Union, which consists of 27 countries. Those 36 plus the European Union's 27 accounts for 80% of the world's global emissions. Several countries, including Britain and the European Union, are close, but the United States, unfortunately, is not. Luckily, we now have an administration that wants us to get back on track. When the previous administration withdrew us from the Paris Agreement, Climate Action Tracker ranked the United States as critically insufficient, which is the worst category of climate action. The U.S. has now been upgraded to almost sufficient domestically, but internationally, we still need some work. As Kodosova writes, the overall climate plans of the United States, European Union, and Japan are not sufficient to reach the 1.5 degree goal, the analysis found, saying that while their domestic targets are relatively close to where they need to be, their international policies are not. And Matt, maybe you could break that down a little bit more because I'm not sure if I understand the meaning of domestic and international in terms of uh, work. Okay, so what they're talking about when they talk about domestic stuff here is our energy policies, our deforestation policies, um, phasing out fossil fuels by a certain date and employing more renewable energy. So we're close there and several other countries are close there. When they talk about international, they're talking about how shipping and transportation isn't often accounted for and stuff like this. And a lot of times in in these sort of talks, military emissions aren't accounted for at all because they're under the umbrella of national defense instead of emissions. So it's kind of this hotly contested topic where I forget the number, I'm not going to estimate, but I know a lot of our emissions as a country come from the U.S. military that's not accounted for in domestic climate pledges. Gotcha. But every time one of those jets takes off and it's a gas-powered jet, it's adding up. And we have a lot 
of jets and a lot of ships and a lot of stuff that's consuming a ton of gas and producing a ton of carbon. So the U.S. is ranked as insufficient in Climate Action Tracker's fair share target rating, which takes into account both the country's responsibility and what I think is really important, capability. The U.S. has produced the largest share of global emissions since the beginning of the industrial age. And while they recently pledged to cut their emissions by 50% to 52% below 2005 levels by the end of the decade, they still have a lot of emissions on their hands from 1920 on. While less than the commitments of the European Union and Britain, all three countries' commitments are substantial for three of the historically highest emitters. Frankly, we have this economic standing to be able to do more, and historically, we are responsible for a lot of the emissions. So I think just from a moral standpoint, we need to do more. Yeah, and the Climate Action Tracker did find that uh, Gambia in West Africa was the only nation to be 1.5 compatible, and they only studied a few smaller emitters, so there could be other developing nations that are on track, but big shouts out to Gambia. Keep it up, folks. Yeah, major shouts to Gambia, and hopefully the COP26 talks means that when we talk about the future Glasgow agreement on a future episode, we're going to talk about how more countries got below that threshold that we need to be at. Yes, prayers. We need freaking Gutierrez to get in there and just just get everyone going. All right, um, Matt, I actually wanted to bring up a quote from the New York Times uh, article that I wrote down, and it's from the former head of the UN Climate Agency, uh, Christina Fugierez, and she said, now science is shouting from the rooftops that it's time to level up actions in an order of magnitude sufficient to the challenge. All other geopolitical issues will fade into irrelevance if we fail to rise to the existential challenge that climate change presents. Man, it's so true. Like if, if we don't handle this correctly, then nothing else really matters. And for that reason, there's just a lot of weight on world leaders' shoulders next month at COP26. Like we have 29 years to reach net zero emissions in order to keep the Earth's warming under 1.5 degrees Celsius. So I guess we just got to hope that COP26 is as productive as we need it to be. That way we can actually reach net zero. Yeah. And I feel like we need, I still think we need like a, a video just being like, I, I know there's so much science and there's so many scientists and smart people behind all this, you know, all of these stats and stuff. But we need someone who's just going to dumb it down to the most basic level and be like, hey, wake up. Yeah, I mean, we just get the two most important people in the world, Sir David Attenborough and, <laughs> you know, I was going to say Bear Grylls, but I'm going to change that to Sir Ian McKellen. <laughs> uh, just get the two of them to just grab a pint, sit down and be like, hey, grandchildren, here's what's going on. It's me, your your grandpa Gandalf. <laughs> And me, Sir David Attenborough, who narrated all of your favorite environmental documentaries. No, seriously, I, I think you're onto something there with like science can be tough. And I think one of the things that we try to do with this show, and I hope we're doing a good job of, is breaking it down in a way that you don't need this crazy scientific background to understand what we're talking about. I think to have something like that for the COP26 talks where all those smart people are going to get gather in a room and say, Hey, here's everything that's going on. Like break that down in real time for people like me and like you who 
aren't as up on some of the jargon. And I think because of this show, we're up on it more than most. So break it down even further and explain like, here's what we're calling for. Here's how it's going to impact you. If we don't do anything, here's how it's going to impact you and just make it super cut and dry. Like this is the science behind it. Yeah. Or even like, okay, I just had a great idea. Um, even if like every state was like, Hey, this is how climate change could impact our state. And then like put out a video with like the person in the States who was like, like, so California would have like Schwarzenegger come on and be like, listen, <laughs> the, <laughs> the coast is, is coming in. The water is rising. Okay. I'm doing a terrible Schwarzenegger, but you get my point. Like if every yeah. state had like their most important person in the state come in and be like, hey, this is what we need to do and these are the landmarks in our state that will be affected by it or the cities in our state that will be affected by it. Everyone would have such a like bigger uh, understanding of how it's going to affect them and also like a want to change it. I think that's the biggest thing. Yeah, and we're going to face the issue of there are states that don't agree with this. There are countries that don't agree with this. But part of being a global citizen and being a humanitarian is sometimes you have to forego your individual ideas for the greater good. And this is something that is so much bigger than any one of us or any group of us. Like this impacts everyone. Yeah. And even at like the most basic empathetic level, just being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes should be enough. But I know it's not for some people. It's, it's hard. Yeah. And like, even when we talk about sea level rise, I mean, I've talked about it a bunch of times on the show. Like I live in Manhattan. It's an Island. It's going to be impacted by sea level rise. I don't know if I'm going to be living in Manhattan when it gets impacted by sea level rise, but then you look at small Island nations out in the South Pacific, like Tuvalu or like the Maldives where they are projected to go underwater by 2030 or 2040 respectively. Yeah. Like those people are going to be impacted within the next 10 to 20 years. Like how would you feel if your house was going to be destroyed and your country could be destroyed and then you have people bragging on TV about, you know, it's still cold outside, so climate change is fake. <laughs> Shut up. It's atrocious. It's it's embarrassing. I mean, as a country, we've had to... It's, it's not just us, though. You know what I mean? Like, there's... Granted, it's worse here than it is in a lot of other places, but, like, Australia and Russia have had pretty bad problems with climate change denial. It's tough, but I don't know. I'm just... I'm really, really hopeful that next month brings some positive change. And just two things that seems like to sum it up, what Nick and I were really advocating for, stronger commitments and legally binding agreements that, hey, if you don't hit this, you're going to face tariffs and we're going to make it more expensive for you to not hit your goals than to just do the work. Yeah, 100% in agreement with you, Matt. And I'm hoping that Antonio Guterres is just going to light a fire uh, in the COP26 agreement. If we can't be it, then I hope that Antonio Guterres is the change we hope to see in the world. (laughs) Right on. All right, that'll do it for this week's episode of The Planet Today. Next week, Nick and I will be back in the studio for our first episode of October. As always, the first episode of every month will be a documentary review. Nick, tell the people what we will be watching this month. We will be watching My Octopus Teacher on Netflix. It is so damn good. I've already seen it. Please go see it. There's a reason it won an Oscar. It's fantastic. Go watch. I haven't seen it. I'm looking forward to it. 
And yeah, I've heard great things. You told me it was fantastic. So I hope everyone uh, tunes in and then listens to the show so we could discuss together as a, a big TP team. Nice. <laughs> and I'm going to watch it again for sure. Go for it. Until that episode drops, you can keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at Planet Today Pod or email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. We'd also really appreciate it if you could share the show with a friend. Like we say every week, we love getting new listeners and engaging with us on social media is kind of the best way to do it. So get your friends to notice the show, get them to listen to the show, and we'll try to interact with everybody. Aside from that, if you have any questions you want answered, send them in. If you see a story you want us to cover, you can tweet it to us. You can DM it to us on Instagram. We are very easy to reach. And if you have a guest you'd like for us to have on, let us know. We can try to make it happen. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You know the spiel at this point. We need more ratings. We need more reviews. It helps us a ton. The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norden. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norden. We are co-hosted and produced by Nick Janusa, who also makes some fantastic music for every single one of these shows. Nick, where can our listeners hear more from you? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, folks. Our logo was made by Kaylee Vietz. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace!